0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio this week are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We have a guest from Citigroup, Andrew Coombs, banks analyst there, and also down the line from Hong Kong, our Asia financial correspondent, Don Wineland. This week, we'll be looking at the latest developments at Royal Bank of Scotland as it gets a rare piece of good news. Secondly, we'll be turning our attention on Deutsche Bank, where a new investor has arrived. And finally, a look at the rather disappointing fullier results from HSBC. First, though, to RBS and Andrew Coombs from Citigroup is on the line. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. The rare piece of good news I mentioned in the introduction is that RBS has been let off the hook as far as complying with an EU antitrust penalty was concerned or state aid penalty uh, is concerned. Several years ago, after they were bailed out by the government, they were told they had to spin off a chunk of their business. Williams & Glynn was to be sold off. And now, via the UK government, a new deal has been done. They don't have to sell this business anymore. This is very welcome to current management. Is it pure good news or do you see any downsides?
1: I think when you look at Williams & Glynn, it does account for about 10% of RBS's group earnings. So if they no longer need to divest that business... As the new proposals suggest, it is a clear positive. The other key item is that there was essentially a dividend blocker attached to that Williams and Glynn divestment. RBS was unable to pay dividends until they had successfully executed on an exit from Williams and Glynn. So if there is a removal of that dividend blocker, that is also helpful. Having said all of that, we would caution that these are just proposals at the moment. So firstly, the European Commission still needs to agree to the Treasury's proposals, and it is possible that they may wish for additions or tougher constraints. And secondly, the devil will certainly be in the detail on the construct of the new proposals. So for example, there is no exact detail on how many or what proportion of RBS's SME customer base is expected to switch to the illegible challenger banks and the conditions that might be attached to that.
0: Okay. Yeah, this is one of the interesting and, as you say, pretty vague elements of this proposal. There's an expected £750 million pound bill attached to this. RBS is expected to have to help challenger banks with some kind of funding to essentially help them win business from RBS.
1: Yes, so essentially what is happening is that the Treasury uh, are proposing that a fund be created which will be administered by an independent body that will allow challenger banks to access that for SME customers. That fund will essentially be supported by RBS through the form of dowries in order to tempt business customers to move to those rival banks. The Commission will now reach out to the challenger banks to get an indication of how successful they think these proposals might be. But what we find particularly interesting is when we think about the impact on RBS, what we don't know is what proportion of their SME customer base is expected to move as part of these proposals. Now, we know within Williams & Glynn, the SME customer base accounted for just over 40% of Williams & Glynn's revenues, about 3% of group revenues, but it is possible that this fund may not just apply to the Williams and Glyn SME customer base, but RBS's broader customer base, which clears a much bigger proportion of their revenues. Likewise, the other point I would flag is that we don't know if there is a new dividend blocker that might be attached. So the European Commission may request that a certain proportion of customers switch before RBS can restate dividends. So that, again, is something we need more detail on.
0: Let me bring Emma in at this stage, because obviously, as Andrew says, this is on the face of it at least net good news the first piece of good news that rbs has had for some time arguably and williams and glynn in particular has cost the bank a huge amount of money The attempted spin-off of this business 1.5 billion pounds at the last count put it in the broader context emma because you wrote a big agenda setting piece about rbs at the beginning of this week looking at all the headaches that are facing the bank still this is one that's potentially removed or at least alleviated
2: Yes, the troubles of attempting to sell off Williams & Glynn really reflect how the legacy of Fred Goodwin, former chief executive of the bank, still haunts RBS today. Since Ross McEwen came in as chief executive in 2013, he spent much of his time and the bank's resources attempting to offload Williams & Glynn. And the stipulation by the European Commission to divest the business stems from its £45 billion bailout during the financial crisis. So it really does reflect how the bank is still grappling with a lot of the issues of the past. The other key hurdle that RBS must clear alongside the Williams & problem is the looming fine from US authorities namely the Department of Justice, for mis-selling mortgage-backed securities. Again, something that happened during the financial crisis and largely under Fred Goodwin's tenure. There are some expectations that the fine could be as large as $13 billion, which will really have a large impact on the bank. And Mr McEwan is hoping that this issue will be resolved in the coming months, although it's arguably out of his hands in terms of timing. It's very much dependent on US regulators.
0: Let me come to Andrew for a final word on that. This clearly is the biggest other hurdle still awaiting RBS, this MBS settlement. Are you confident that can be dealt with in the coming months? Because we've had a succession of other banks that have settled, most recently Deutsche Bank, just before Christmas. What happens from here? Once that's out of the way, can RBS end its nine-year run of losses? Can RBS be a successful bank again?
1: RBS... On the back of some of the other European banks that have already settled with the Department of Justice and other U.S. authorities, have pre-announced that they will take a $3.1 billion litigation provision in the fourth quarter. So you have a $3.1 billion litigation provision, and on top of that, the $750 million aforementioned charge for these new state aid obligation proposals. So you are looking at a sizable statutory loss in the fourth quarter. We think that could be up to an 11% hit to tangible book value and also about 180 basis points hit to the quarter one ratio. So certainly the fourth quarter, you will see a large statutory loss that will weigh on the balance sheet, book value and capital position. Above and beyond that, we are forecasting... Further litigation charges in 2017, we are looking for another £1.2 across a range of different issues that still weigh on RBS, but we believe those litigation issues should be largely resolved by the end of this year.
0: And beyond that, does it have a future?
1: Beyond that, they are adopting a strategy of returning to being a UK-focused bank on retail and commercial banking. I think that in the long run, it is the right strategy. It is just in the short term, there is clearly a lot of execution risk around that and a lot of pain potentially as they book some of the restructuring charges attached to that strategic plan.
0: Well, they're certainly used to pain. Let's hope it doesn't last too much longer. Andrew Coombs from Citigroup, thank you very much. Let's move on to our second topic of the day, which is a look at Deutsche Bank. Deutsche has welcomed a new investor to their shareholder register. A Chinese company called HNA has bought a stake of a little over 3%. Martin, this, I think, came out of the blue. We'll go in a second to Don Wineland in Hong Kong to tell us a bit more about HNA. But
3: I guess from Deutsche's point of view, it's always good to have an anchor investor. It certainly is. It's an interesting move. We hadn't foreseen this, but... It's not entirely unexpected because the market is abuzz still with speculation that Deutsche will need to raise capital at some point. So often companies, when they're looking to raise capital, they will bring in a new investor who's been more supportive to that to perhaps replace some investors who are looking to get out. And their shares have rallied extremely strongly from the low points towards the latter half of last year when there was serious concerns about this fine that they were facing. From the Department of Justice in the U.S. for mis-selling mortgage securities, they've now resolved that they paid a pretty high price for it. But that's out the way; the market is relieved, and this deal makes HNA the fourth biggest single investor in Deutsche. Behind BlackRock, which owns just over 6%, and two investment vehicles that are part of the Qatari royal family and together own about 6.1% of the bank between them. So this puts HNA right up there in terms of the shareholder register.
0: Now, HNA is not an asset management company. They're something of a conglomerate. They'll be little known to many in Europe, and I suspect to many listeners. Don, you know a bit about them, as much as many would locally in Asia, because they're a company that's grown very fast from pretty unusual roots. Tell us the basics.
4: Yeah, they've grown quite quickly, Patrick, they're probably the most aggressive Chinese buyer that most people in Europe or the United States have never come across. But, you know, they now own some of the largest software distribution companies in the world. They bought Ingram Micro last year for $6.5 billion. That automatically put them on the Forbes 500 list. They've done about $33 billion in m a over the past two years, about half of that has been overseas. Another large deal that they did in the latter half of last year was they took over CIT or CIT Aviation based in Singapore. That was a $10 billion deal. Their roots are in aviation. They own Hainan Airlines, um, that's kind of their flagship business. They have shares in over 10 airlines in China, they own airports globally. So they really have taken the global stage over the past two years, and it's not terribly surprising to see them buy into a bank in Europe.
0: Just to be clear, a lot of the assets that they will have bought are maybe big, but they're relatively little known in certain parts of the world anyway. But I think I'm right in saying that they bought a 25% stake in Hilton Hotels, didn't they? That was maybe one of their landmark deals.
4: Yes, they bought that from Blackstone late last year.
0: And then I suppose the other thing that people tend to talk about with them is how obscure they are in terms of their own ownership, their own equity base, the extent to which leverage is used in the group for all of this expansion. How stable are they as shareholders in Deutsche Bank?
4: Hmm, That's an interesting question. I mean, as a global acquirer of assets, I think they now have so many assets abroad that they don't have to rely on onshore financing for a lot of their deals. Right now, there's a clampdown on outbound transactions from China that's put a lot of groups in a bind when it comes to getting financing onshore. But H&A and a handful of other Chinese groups have so many assets offshore that they're able to use offshore financing quite easily to buy into assets overseas. As a shareholder in one of the world's largest banks, I think it's really hard to say how stable they'll be as a shareholder.
0: Okay, Don, you've shed a lot of light on what is otherwise a fairly murky situation here, but we'll watch it with interest, particularly as Martin says, with the prospect of a rights issue coming in the next few months. Let's finally move on to HSBC, which on Tuesday morning put out some pretty underwhelming results. Martin, you were up at the crack of dawn covering these. Shareholders were not impressed.
3: No, the shares, which have been on a great run, sold off quite heavily and were down more than 6% this morning in London after HSBC announced 62% fall in annual net profits to uh, just over $7 billion. Now, that's not bad for most banks, $7 billion. But HSBC, the past few years, has been more accustomed to making close to $20 billion in net profits. So what happened, you might ask? Well, analysts are actually more worried about the decline in revenues and the pressure on revenues than they are about the big drop in profits, because most of that, was attributable to one-off items like changes in the value of their debt. They took a big write-down on goodwill for their private banking business. They sold their Brazilian business last year and they took a big write-down on that as well. So there were lots of one-off explanations as to why profits are down so much, but it's really analysts worrying that the bank is struggling to increase revenues faster than their costs are rising. And the bank has come out and said that because of this weakness in revenues, it is going to accelerate its cost-cutting plans and try and take out another $1.5 to $2 billion worth of costs. There's also another worrying disclosure in the annual report that came out today from HSBC, which said that the monitor that's been installed in the bank for the past four years by US and UK regulators has got some pretty serious concerns about its ability to meet the requirements of its deferred prosecution agreement which, if you remember, stems back to when HSBC agreed a settlement with regulators for breaching money laundering and sanctions rules. And the Monitor has been tracking its attempts to clean itself up and says that it's not on track and it's got some pretty serious concerns. It has made progress, but it's not moving fast enough for the Monitor's liking. And indeed, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, it disclosed today, is investigating the bank for money laundering breaches in the UK.
0: And the ultimate sanctions here, I mean, both
3: from the Monitor and from the FCA? Who knows? probably the worst thing for HSBC would be if the regulators decided to fine it and extended the deferred prosecution agreement. I mean, ultimately, the worst case scenario is that there is some kind of criminal conviction, because the deferred prosecution agreement, as the name suggests, is part of the settlement they signed. And they agreed if they cleaned themselves up, they wouldn't be convicted and have a guilty plea for the original wrongdoing doing and so theoretically the US government could impose a criminal conviction on HSBC and that could in theory put their license in question in the US however we've seen other banks like credit suisse agree guilty pleas and not lose their license in the US so that's not such an existential fear although theoretically if it's really bad and regulators decide that the bank is just incapable of Cleaning itself up and doing the right thing, then I guess that's their ultimate sanction.
0: Now, this isn't great for Stuart Gulliver, who's the chief executive and who we expect to be kind of winding down as CEO over the next year or two, don't we? It's going to be hard for him to go out on a high, isn't it?
3: Maybe. I think it's going to be hard for the chairman to go out on a high because they talked about succession today, and the plan is for them at some point this year to find a new chairman to replace Douglas Flint. That's the first step. And so Douglas Lint is expected to stay potentially up until the end of the year. Then the new chairman takes over and that person, whoever that is, will then have the responsibility of finding successor to Stuart Gulliver, which most people assume means that Stuart Gulliver will go at some point in 2018. But that hasn't been specifically said by him or by the bank. So he could be around until 2019. Their performance was weak, but the key thing for this bank like a lot of other banks but particularly for HSBC because of its excess of deposits in Hong Kong is interest rates and what happens on monetary policy particularly US monetary policy and if interest rates go up rapidly in the US then HSBC is expected to be one of the biggest beneficiaries of that and that could solve a lot of their problems.
0: So Donald Trump dictates everything or at least the Fed well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma here in the studio, Andrew Coombs, our guest from Citigroup, and Don Wineland, our colleague from Hong Kong. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.